You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Oh, it's been a long time since we've had our buddy Jeff Passan on. The baseball season is heating up, and we're so caught up with football, we, we haven't been talking about it as much as we should, but there's a lot going on. I want to start with the question that we just asked our audience, Jeff, because I'm actually kind of torn on this one. Tony LaRusso goes out with an illness, and his team plays much better. That is not an arguable fact. It is true. Is it wrong for the White Sox to encourage him not to return due simply to the fact that it feels icky to have someone lose their job for an illness? Ooh. You know, that that's phrased in a way that I haven't heard before. Uh, n- no, I, I don't think it's icky because I think Tony Larissa was probably either getting fired or stepping away after this regardless. Um, I I just don't think he was going to manage his way back into things because it's going on two years now and he hasn't done a particularly good job, especially with the expectations of the roster that he had. And since Miguel Cairo's taken over, they've been pretty awesome actually and look a lot more like the team that we expected, that I expected at the beginning of this year when I picked them to win the World Series. Oh, Ooh. Uh, oh, yeah. So oh. how does this yeah. get handled? That Like if he's not coming back, do they defer to him and he suddenly swallows his pride and says, yeah, cool, I'm out? Or uh, how, oh, how I, thought they... you, I thought you meant how does this get handled? Like, are you going to be fired for being such an idiot and picking the White Sox to win the World <laughs> if, Series? If making no, bad oh, picks gets you fired. I wouldn't have a job, brother. So, yeah, there we go. Good, you know, that is a good point. But, but we also have to acknowledge that like you do takes every day. No, that's fair. I get to a- like I get asked to do takes once a year. Mm. That's <laughs> prediction time. I avo- <laughs> I avoid I avoid predictions at all other times aside from opening day. And this year, frankly, like this is the the God's honest truth. Uh, I wanted to pick the Dodgers, but I pick the Dodgers every year. And I said, you know what? Let's not go chalk this year. Let's go a little <laughs> off the board. What's a good? Oh, the White Sox are interesting and. Uh, yeah, they were interesting. They're interesting. Um, and and look, I honestly, I still don't think they're going to make the playoffs. I mean, Cleveland is surging right now. Six straight wins coming into Wednesday's game. Like, uh, you know, they are quite good. And, and good in a weird way, like a contact hitting, you know, majority pitching, good defense, throwback kind of way. Uh, the White Sox are more talented, but I just don't know if they've got the manpower to catch them at this point. Let's talk about the Dodgers because you mentioned them. This uh, this doesn't feel like a huge deal when they win the division. They've done it almost every single year for the last decade, but it's a huge deal in terms of their path once the postseason begins. And it's the first step towards the only thing that matters, which is a World Series win. How are you feeling about the Dodgers in terms of confidence to get that second World Series with this regime? Sarah, here's why it's a huge deal, because it shines a little spotlight on this team that I don't think people appreciate how historically awesome they've been. Right now, the Dodgers have scored 766 runs. The next best team in baseball is Atlanta with 705. So that's a 61-run difference offensively. The Dodgers have allowed 446 runs. That is the fewest in the big leagues. The Mm. next closest is the Houston Astros at 462. So they've scored the most. They've allowed the fewest. And the 320 
the plus 320 run differential that the Dodgers have right now is the fourth highest in history since the live ball era behind the 1927 Yankees, the 1939 Yankees, and the 1936 Yankees. The, what the Dodgers are doing this year is historically awesome. And I don't think people realize that. You know, you see the box scores every night. And Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman and Trey Turner and Will Smith and Clayton Kershaw and Julio Rios. And we can go on and on. You know, they have a bullpen with a bunch of guys who people don't really know, but they've been extremely effective. Um, This is a – maybe it's a West Coast thing, but I think the the juggernaut that has been formed out there that has been going on a decade – I just don't think people appreciate it enough for what it's turned into. This is a team that a year after setting a franchise record with 106 wins is going to go out and smash that this year. All right, Jeff. So from the underappreciated to the we're contractually obligated to talk about him, Aaron Judge uh, just absolutely Don't be a hater, Fitz. I'm not being a hater. I'm just saying like every every day right now we're talking about Aaron Judge. So give me some perspective, uh, not just on what he's doing this season, but on why none of us saw this coming. Did none of us see this coming? I mean, to this level? I think Aaron Judge, when he goes out as a rookie, fits and hits 52 home runs and looks like the best power hitter in baseball. Um, I think we can see that coming, right? But the problem is the year after he did that, he played 112 games. And the year after he did that, he played 102 games. And the year after that, he played 28 of the 60 games. And not until last year when he played 148 games did he come anywhere close to a full season. And and if there's any skepticism, it's never been about Aaron Judge's talent. It's always been about his ability to stay healthy. And, uh, you know, uh, up until Bryce Harper's, you know, uh, injury that kept him out this year on his thumb, he'd done a relatively good job after early career injuries of staying pretty healthy and, Aaron Judge, for the most part, this year has been healthy. He's played in, I think, 95 96% of the Yankees' games to this point. And, uh, man, that goes a really, really long way when it comes to producing the numbers that he's producing and hitting the, the threshold that he wants to hit. I mean, the guy wants to have 62 home runs. He wants to own the American League record, and I think he's got a good shot at doing it. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Jeff Passan, ESPN MLB Insider. You can follow him at Jeff Passan. Yeah, I mean, Judge is on pace for 65. What would get in his way would be injury or nerves. Uh, he doesn't seem to be phased. He's not getting protection in that lineup. The team has desperately needed him since the All-Star break. He's betting on himself for $213 million that he passed up with the hopes of getting $300, $400 million. There is so much on the line and he seems unbothered entirely by it. The only conversation that I've really found interest in that seems like there's some tension there is whether or not he believes he's chasing Marist or Bonds. Do you think it was okay and fair for him to say that the guy that he sees and the record that he sees is the one he watched, which is Bonds? What's in the record book, Sarah? Yeah, it's Bonds. That's the record. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's the record. That's the answer. I mean, you know... What he could say is that I'd love to have the American League record. I'd love to have the New York Yankees record. I'd love to, you know, bring it back to, uh, not bring it back to because I suppose it's there, but, uh, you know, keep it in a new generation of pinstripes. 
But then again, and I know Yankees fans aren't going to like hearing this, there's a chance Aaron Judge isn't wearing pinstripes after this year, too, because he's a free agent this offseason. And it's like you said, the Yankees are going to need to pay at least $100 million more, it seems, than they offered when they tried to sign him during spring training and were unsuccessful. Hey, Fitz, I have a last question unless you're dying to get one in. Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, I forgot I wanted to ask you about this. So I don't know if you know our associate producer on Around the Horn, Josh Bard. He's one of my favorite people here at the company. And he has a conspiracy theory that he thinks there's some real depth to. And it's that the Red Sox are serving up meatballs to Aaron Judge to make his price go up. (laughs) Is there any truth to Boston wanting him to cost even more by encouraging him to break this record? Wow. Um, yeah, I think I can just end it at wow. Okay. All right. I'm going to say, I'm going to take, I'm going to write you down for a no. I'm going to write no, you the, down. See, the for great a thing no. about a conspiracy theory is that, you know, the, the answer to that's going to be, well, he wouldn't tell us anyway, even if of it course. was real. You don't have of to course. accept any of it. Logic be damned. Okay. Okay. If, been that's, if, that's, if, if my, if my, if my non answer is being taken as a possibly, <laughs> then no. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Put you down for a no. Hey, Jeff, we'll have you on more as the playoffs get closer. Nice talking to you. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks, guys. Take care. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. You guys can hit us up on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain. At Jason Fitz. Uh, we'll get into some NFL action for week two in just a second, but uh, there's more developments in the constantly, uh, I, I guess we're getting more information, I should say, in the story regarding uh, Brett Favre and an investigative report by Mississippi Today revealing that ex-Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant discussed with Favre how to divert at least $5 million in welfare funds to build a volleyball stadium at Southern Miss, remembering that is at the time where Brett Favre's uh, daughter was playing volleyball. Uh, the news, inf- uh, news organization reviewed text messages from 2017 and 2019 that were filed Monday in Mississippi civil lawsuit over misspent welfare funds. So there have been no criminal charges pressed uh, filed yet for Favre and Bryant, but this is still developing, Sarah. And uh, one of uh, one of our sort of, I, I would say, new stars. Can I say David Dennis Jr. is a new star? Yeah, uh, newish. I, I feel like I, I'm seeing him everywhere You're right now. You're seeing him more. And he's yep. doing great work. And he had strong things to say about this today. I want everybody to hear. Check this out. They have given $5 million to Brett Favre, who has decided that he to use that, who has $110 million, who has decided to take away that money and build a freaking volleyball stadium and growing up in jackson mississippi i have heard nothing but how we are lazy and don't do anything and are responsible for our own um oppression and we do not try to do better for ourselves and we have a place that these folks are doing what they can for themselves the state is actively funneling money away from the people who need it to give to a millionaire former football player because he could throw a ball like this is more than criminal this is like one of the most vile stories that i can imagine happening because it wasn't just five million dollars he is part of an overall 70 plus million dollar conspiracy Mm. to take money away from black folks in the state of mississippi yeah, David Dennis Jr. is from Mississippi. His mom lives there. His in-laws live there. He's headed back there actually tonight. I was going to have him on the show instead, just played the sound. 
he spoke even more at length on Debatable about it. And one of the things he talked about that really shines a spotlight on exactly how unequal things are in Mississippi and how poor that state is, the poorest in our country, is the water crisis right now. And not having drinking water, not having clean water, and understanding the depths of poverty that you're dealing with, those are the people that Brett Favre knew, and we know that from the text messages, that he was diverting money away from. Someone who has over $100 million of career earnings. I don't know how you sleep at night, Fitz, and that's not me being dramatic. I do not know how you can have the blessings and the economic wealth and ease and comfort of Brett Favre and be willing to do something like he did. The the why is a question that I think we're all going to be waiting to see, and we probably never will get the answer to, Sarah. But uh, there's a moment where, to every point that David Dennis Jr. made on Debatable about the wealth that Favre has accumulated and the advantage he was taking, I just, like, why? What was your logic? What was your thought process? Mm -hmm. And why did you think, A, it was the right thing to do, B, you could get away with it, and C, that you needed it? I mean, And it- Fitz, he won't say it out loud, but quickly, I do think that what David Dennis Jr. alluded to, which is the idea of quote-unquote welfare queens, where people believe that those who are receiving government funds are undeserving and not hardworking and et cetera, based on some of what we've heard from Favre in the past in terms of his feelings about social issues and political issues, I would not be surprised if the truth, if caught on tape, was that he did not believe that those people... Ha- were deserving of it yeah. is that there was no empathy for them and therefore he doesn't feel bad about taking money meant for them i i will i have no problem with the dad wanting to buy wanting to build a new stadium for whatever sport his daughter plays and if you have the means to do it go ahead and do it but when you're robbing from people that actually need it in order to get it done and when the text messages show you knew what you were doing could get you in trouble Man, there should be a real accountability conversation mm-hmm. that I'm afraid won't happen. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, uh, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We've spent so much time uh, going over week one. Earlier in the show, we turned the page on to week two, and there's a great article right now out on ESPN Plus from our buddies Jeremy Fowler and Dan Graziano that really takes a good look at some of the NFL week two upsets to expect and what they're looking for throughout the course of of the week. Now, I think it's interesting because one of their questions was which team should they be most worried about after week one? Dan Graziano with the easy answer, the Cowboys on this one. I think that makes a lot of sense. But actually, Jeremy Fowler came in and said the Cardinals because of how they looked against Kansas mm. City. A little surprised to see that answer from Fowler. Well, I think also all of the offseason stuff with the Cardinals makes this real dicey in terms of the reception you're getting after handing a contract to Kyler, the question marks within that contract, the expectations that they get worse later in the season. So if you start out terrible, where are you going from there? You know, to me, I think... I think there's a good reason to think that you don't want them to start 0-2. Yeah, I w- totally agree on that. The 0-2 hole feels really insurmountable so often, uh, which is why I need the Cardinals to start 0-2 so that the Raiders don't. <laughs> uh, another one that really made me feel good, uh, honestly, was their buy or sell. This will be the first postseason without either the Patriots or the Steelers since 2000. Those two teams play each other this week. Uh, Graziano and Fowler both bought that. That this is this is, and really, it seemed like the Steelers were the more difficult part of the conversation for both of them. I think we've almost we expected so much difficulty from the Patriots offensively. We're forgetting that they looked awful in Mm. week one and it just Mm -hmm. supports the theories that some of us had coming into the season that the offense was going to be the Achilles heel for this team. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think this, I, I agree with this. Mac Jones, we've got the back issues that we've got to figure out. And, and even if he's healthy, I, I think plenty of, of time needed to grow. That offense, the question marks around who's really in charge, all of that stuff. I don't think the Patriots are going to be a good team this year, so I wouldn't be shocked if they miss out. As for the Steelers, what we saw in week one is probably going to be the story of the season, which is a team that's relying on defense. Mitchell Trubisky, it, it looks like it's going to be a lot like the 2018 Bears. They win some games because they get great field position, they get some defensive scores, and the other team has trouble getting in the end zone, and then Mitchell Trubisky gets enough done. But I don't think he's a great quarterback, and I think there's enough good teams that the Steelers could easily miss out. Well, and another quarterback that they want to see there sitting on the bench. I just, how long can they hold off Pickett? A top upset for week two, Graziano uh, just threw in a little bonus pick. Jags over the Colts, and it's actually Ooh. pretty incredible because the Colts play in Jacksonville every year and haven't won. The Colts have not won in Jacksonville since September 21st, 2014. Think about that. You remember last year, all they needed to do was beat the absolutely pathetic, completely exploded Jags team, and the Colts couldn't get it done. It knocked them out of the playoffs. So they've got some extra interest in winning this game, but like you said, it's been a long time. I'm okay with that. The Colts didn't look good in week one, and I expect the Jags to be a better team than simply taking the expected step forward when you get rid of Urban Meyer. Oh, the sky will be falling if suddenly <laughs> the Colts are 0-1-1 with the loss to the Jags and a tie with the Colts. All right, what do the Sun have to do to stay alive in the WNBA Finals tomorrow? We'll ask someone who's had eyes on it the whole way. Spain and Fitz the podcast. Jason Fitz has been really professional all night, despite uh, the excitement of his Vegas Aces taking in two nothing finals lead and being Woo. on the brink of a championship Woo. with a win tomorrow in Connecticut. I will admit, though, during the commercial breaks, he has spent exclusively his time trying to figure out how to get into the stadium tomorrow, get in that arena, and be there in person without having to pay and or by getting credentials and or by getting free stuff. Typical fits. It's Spain and Fitz. ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Let's bring in someone who's been watching this series even more closely than Fitz has because he's and been writing about it. Go ahead. And yeah, definitely yeah. has credentials. Yeah, ESPN basketball writer Kevin Pelton. Kevin, thanks for the time. Let's talk about the win last night and specifically what you saw in relation to the great story that you wrote the other day about Becky Hammond being one of several coaches in the WNBA that's decided to bring back the zone defense and how has it worked against the sun it's interesting because in game one the numbers actually showed it wasn't very effective uh, overall as compared to their their player to player defense but we saw better results in game two and, and becky hammond's kind of deployed it in a very specific situation which is when connecticut goes to this super big lineup where they put courtney williams at point guard, she's like the one traditional guard on the court. They have Dewana Bonner at the two. They have Alyssa Thomas and John Paul Jones at forward, Brianna Jones in the middle. And that's about as big a lineup as you're going to see in any game. And Las Vegas doesn't necessarily have the size to deal with that. So the way they've been able to compensate and at least keep Connecticut from kind of dominating with that lineup is to go to the zone. So, you know, Connecticut did make a run there in the second quarter using the big lineup. Uh, but Las Vegas was, was able to pull away and kind of neutralize it in the second half. Kevin, you just mentioned Dewana Bonner, and she has not played well in this series, and that's being kind at this point. What needs to change for her to get on track? 
Yeah, it's shocking how poorly she's played. I, I think I saw the stat in ESPN stats and info in their chat last night that uh, no NBA player since the 1950s, no WNBA player ever has had a finals game, two back-to-back finals games, shooting as poorly as she has on at least five shot attempts. And this is surprising from someone who's been one of the league's best players for a long period of time. I mean, I think, you know, maybe kind of similar to Kelsey Plum, who we saw struggle with first shot in game one and then a totally different outcome in game two. And one of the biggest reasons for that was Plum kind of put her head down, got to the basket, got some easy shots. Then the three got going as well, got to the free throw line. And I think that's what Juana Bonner also probably needs to look to do. Getting to the free throw line has always been a big part of her value. Haven't seen a lot of that yet in this series. You can follow him at K Pelton WBB and several other accounts, but we'll focus on that one for the night. Uh, Kevin, Chelsea Gray is a great player. I think she's a four-time All-Star, but she has stepped up her game in an insane way this postseason. I don't know if her true shooting percentage is still the greatest of all time across both NBA and WNBA, but I know it's still close if it's not. What has Becky Hammond done to employ her? What has she done to up her game in this way? You know, it's funny because you asked Becky Hammond about that, as we did a lot during the semifinals I was covering. And, you know, she's basically like, look, it's a luxury. I just give her the ball and let her go to work. And that's really <laughs> kind of been the case because these are not, you know, designed plays. This is not a pick and roll that's freeing her. This is not some elaborate off-ball screen. It's her hitting shots with defenders draped all over her. And you just keep thinking, well, this can't possibly continue. Nobody can stay this high. Not even someone who's as good a contested shot maker as Chelsea Gray is. But so far, you know, she's way out off the cliff and she hasn't looked down and realized it yet. Kevin, we've talked a lot on this show about the lack of depth for the Aces, which was supposed to be the biggest concern. It hasn't reared its ugly head so far in the playoffs particularly, but now – You have to go across country. You only get one day rest. Is this the game where that depth becomes a bigger concern for the Aces? It's certainly a possibility, and I think it's why people wondered how early Becky Hammond was going to get out her starters at the end of game two with a pretty comfortable lead in that situation. I mean, Asia Wilson basically has just kind of refused to get tired. We saw the incredible stat that she played all but four minutes of the series against Seattle in the semifinals the entirety of game three, which went into overtime, all of game four as well. And it it, it hasn't seemed to affect her. She was still as fresh as anyone on the court in that overtime in game three. It was the Storm who looked sluggish after, you know, the shock of uh, Jackie Young's basket with under a second left to tie it and send it to overtime. So maybe this is the game, but Dierica Hamby coming back has helped them a little bit in that regard. Now they've got, you know, kind of seven players, I think, that Becky Hammond trusts, whereas in that Seattle series by the end, it was really kind of down six. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, talking about the WNBA Finals. Aces with a two-games-to-none lead over the Sun. They can close it out and win the title tomorrow. Kevin, put into perspective what we've seen from Asia Wilson, not just this year, but in her first five seasons with the W, two MVPs, a DPOY. I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say she could end up being one of the greatest ever. For sure. I mean, I think it's her and Brianna Stewart have kind of separated themselves with all due respect to John Call Jones, who was the MVP ahead of both of them last year. And they've kind of been going back and forth for MVP in, in both 2020 and 2022. And, you know, it's interesting because in that 2020 season, they end up meeting in the finals and Stewie really kind of got the better of Asia Wilson, reestablished herself as the best player of the world. This year in the semifinals matchup, media again, Brianna Stewart played about as well as she possibly can, had 42 points in game four to tie the WNBA single-game playoff record. 
and yet Asia Wilson was probably still better in that series. Uh, we've seen, I think, five consecutive 2010 games now from Asia Wilson. Her, her scoring is at a different level than we've seen in past playoff runs. And, you know, as good as she was beforehand, having won an MVP, having led the Aces to, you know, the league's best record uh, in, in 2020, Still, I think she's reached a different level this year in terms of her ability to negotiate double teams, you know, make the right play when when she can't beat double teams and find open open teammates. She's playing at an incredibly high level right now. What's the adjustment in your mind Connecticut can make to win the next game? You know, it's, it's interesting. I feel like it may we may see more Brianna Jones. They've generally had some good moments with her on the court, I think. Some of their better moments in the second quarter of both of these games. But I think a lot of it is just going to come back to their players need to, to play better. They need to execute better. We talked about Dewana Bonner, and obviously that's a, a huge part of it, as poorly as she's shot thus far. I also think, you know, their guard play can be better. Courtney Williams was really good in game two, but, you know, they haven't yet gotten that big game from Natisha Heideman like we saw in, in game five at Chicago as they closed out the sky on the road. And it'll be interesting to see how much of a difference the home court, home court, uh, home crowd makes for them. Again, they had that big win in Chicago on the road, so it's not like they can't win there. But uh, you know, Las Vegas was rocking the last couple of games. I was there for Game One, and it was you know a great atmosphere, a really rowdy crowd. And I think you know Connecticut will have a good crowd for Game Three, and it'll be a very different atmosphere than these last two. Kevin Pelton with us, ESPN basketball writer here on Spain and Fitz. How long have you been writing about women's soups for ESPN or, or in, in general? Well, in general, going back to 2003 was my first season covering the WNBA. And, and really the last five years I've been doing it pretty regularly for ESPN. Okay, it's a long time. So we were talking earlier in the show from our perspective, mine in particular, having been at ESPN for 12 years, being a part of ESPNW's launch, being a part of ESPN 1000 and trying to convince the guys to be respectful at the very least, if, if not talk about women's sports in a meaningful way, at least don't degrade them. And it feels like the last five years, but then this year even more so. The data, the sponsorships, the ratings, the interest, the conversations – for you, from your perspective, how different does it feel this year and in the last few years? Yeah, I think it's really the five years is probably a good place because, I, you know, obviously being in Seattle, the Storm's run to the 2018 finals got a lot of attention. and it, But it really has been more kind of part of the zeitgeist, part of, part of the general conversation, I think, in that period of time. The bubble season was big in that regard. You know, people were home and, and didn't have a lot else to do because people were generally staying home. And, and they discovered women's basketball was on and watched it and really enjoyed it. And now I, I think the conversations on Twitter are a lot more active and robust than we've ever seen. And, look, you're always going to have some degree of kind of the, the trolling from, uh, you know, people who want to denigrate the WNBA. But I think there was a point where that was kind of a cool thing to do. Uh, early in this league's existence, and I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah. I think if you're doing that, you're kind of out of it now. Completely agree. And I do think the conversation and the level of debate that happens when they added more advanced statistics and when social media made it so that the traditional gatekeepers didn't have to say 
will run this story or will play this show. It's just passionate people talking about it that, that, that elevated when more and more people got interested. It's been really cool to watch. You've been a big part of it. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Uh, looking forward to seeing the coverage for tomorrow's game. Yeah, you find a plus one out there. You hit me up, Kevin. I'll be there <laughs> somehow, somewhere. I'm not going to be there, sadly, tomorrow night. Uh, but uh, we'll see. We may have a seat for you. Oh, there we gonna, go. I, I think I just heard I'm taking uh, I'm taking his, his media think, pass. That's did. what's happening. I think you did. <laughs> uh, Kevin Pelton, you can follow Thanks, him Kevin. at K-Pelton WBB. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Protect the stuff you love with renter's insurance. Visit Progressive.com. Adam Silver talked about the Robert Sarver situation. Now LeBron made his thoughts on it public. We'll tell you what he said next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. We uh, heard from the NBA yesterday in general regarding the decision to, uh, to suspend and fine Sons of Mercury owner Robert Sarver. Now, that was for one year uh, with the suspension and $10 million. Uh, while we heard from the league in a statement, we waited till today to hear from Adam Silver. Adam Silver has spoken. But before you hear from Adam Silver, the real face of the NBA we all know is LeBron James. And LeBron James, about an hour ago, went to Twitter. This is what he said. Read through the Sarver stories a few times. Now, I got to be honest. Our league definitely got this wrong. I don't need to explain why. Y'all read the stories and decide for yourself. I said it before, and I'm going to say it again. There's no place in this league for that kind of behavior. I love this league, and I deeply respect our leadership. But this isn't right. There is no place for misogyny, sexism, and racism in any workplace. Don't matter if you own the team or play for the team. We hold our league up as an example of our values, and this ain't it. He didn't mince words, Sarah, in how he felt. Yeah, and I'm not surprised. What I am, what I will be surprised about is if players from the NBA and WNBA don't make their voices heard on this more. Don't challenge what Adam Silver said today and the decision-making around Sarver's punishment because a year from now, uh, you, you could guess that it would die down, but I don't think the people in the building working directly with Sarver, particularly for the Suns and, and the Mercury, are going to feel like all's fixed just because he was gone for a year I, I think there's i'm expecting more there is such a point here with with regards to the suns and the mercury uh in the sense that we're going to be waiting to hear from everybody right like uh, this is a question that's going to be asked i'll be interested mm-hmm. to see how their prominent players handle it on both in both of those organizations because the the information is pretty damning this is what adam silver said and i want you to hear the long form version of what he said because it talks a lot about why the league came to the decisions it came to. This is Adam Silver at his press conference. I was not the fact finder here. I mean, the Wachtell firm conducted the 320 interviews and ultimately um, made their conclusions. I will say, I think that that's a, in some ways a legal distinction. I think what, as I interpreted their report to be saying, that we are not able to conclude based on the context of those statements that they were, they were said out of racial animus. I think they're also, they are in essence saying that we do not know what is in his heart or in um, ultimately his mind, but that in the broader context of him saying those things, as foolish as it was for him to say that, as indefensible for him to say that, we do not find that, that the motivation in those instances of saying those things was based on race, but that is their finding. And, and again, they have the benefit of the larger context of doing those interviews, of, of seeing the full context in which those things were said. So I understand 
the inference that can be drawn from those things, but they, but they ultimately found there was insufficient evidence to make those findings. Fitz, I think what the key thing there was he started with, it's a legal distinction, which leads me to believe that some of his deciding is being done based on whether there's a criminal aspect to the behavior. And I don't think that that's the standard by which we should be making these decisions for a leadership position for a multi-billion dollar brand that's part of a collective, that's part of two leagues that purport to stand for something. And I'm also curious, and I wonder how many follow-ups there were during this presser beyond the accusations of use of the N-word, which you could try to argue, oh, he was repeating things. He wasn't saying them in the same way we for sure heard Donald Sterling that was very you know, critical of black people. What about the behaviors around male and female employees that were extremely questionable and have zero, there's zero context for which dropping your pants in front of a male employee that's doing a physical on you is okay. There's zero context for some of the comments around women that he made not wanting to work with them because they're whiny and whatever. Like those things, why are are those not front and center for Adam Silver being addressed as well? Yeah, uh, and you know, Mike Golick Jr. tweeted out earlier, also known as we didn't have leaked audio or video. And I don't want to be cynical, but it feels like this is one of those instances, right? Like if this was, if, if we had audio that was being played over and over and over again and video that was being played over and over and over again, it mm-hmm. hits harder. It shouldn't, but it hits harder. Yep. And then all of a sudden, you know, people turn around and react differently. The, the question is, why you know and at some point you've got to look at this and say what's next for phoenix you know as as i said earlier i I wait to hear from i i I expect it will hear from star players but also there's a moment around the league where if you're a star player do you want to go play for the suns i mean there are going to be real questions that come from all of this that i think need to be answered and as adam silver wants to continually talk about the context we don't have i will continually answer that with two words provide it if I don't have the context, simply provide it to me, and that's something that the league. Well, could but he do. can't. No, he. He can well, provide it you the context that, that they made. That he can provide you the context he says he has that we don't. That allows him to not know what's in somebody's head. If, if, I if, think what he's saying is that the illegal findings were that they could not identify the context of what he said in order to be certain that was that it was malicious and racist. What I said earlier was there is no context for a white person repeatedly using the N-word, understanding and knowing for the entirety of their lifetime and the decades before that it is not a word for them. No, but he and every also, time they choose to use it, it doesn't matter the context. But he also said in, in his sound clip that he has the context we don't. So that has to mean something. Yeah, I mean, he said he sees it it within the context of the larger multi-hundred page whatever, but then all, at the same time said we don't know enough about what actually happened in the moment of these things. And what I would say then is the people who brought these instances to, to light, they will tell you the context. And if you don't believe them, that's a choice you're making. Right. And if he wants me to have the context to be informed to the level he is, he can provide whatever context he did have. Some That's of it, what I'm yes. saying. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you don't, if you're Adam Silver and you come in and say, hey, this is, this is essentially, this is complicated. There's a lot of information here. And, you know, we have all of these investigations going on. And, you know, there's, there's context to it that I have that you don't. That's why I would challenge provide that context. There has to be some reason. And, and if it is as simple as, I, so I don't mean simple, but if it is clear to them that there's a legal line that has to be met, 
then they can be more transparent in what their investigation showed, what line they were trying to meet, yeah. and what line was met. That would also What you're saying context. is prove it. What you're yeah. saying is we're not going to be okay with you just telling us, ah, we didn't really have enough to take the team away from him. Then, then prove what you had and why you believe that what you have makes him deserving of coming back in a year. Yeah, and, and I think there's a fair question because we've seen the league suspend indefinitely an owner. So, you know, it's even if you're telling me you can't take a team from somebody – why did you come to one year? Why not five years? Why not 10 years? I mean, there are so many different variables here that could have been defined, and we didn't get any real clear answers from Adam Silver other than him saying, I didn't investigate it, somebody else did, and it's complicated. Right. I don't think that's right. a, enough of an answer. Right, and saying I can't take the team away from him when we saw it happen already with Sterling. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, real quick, Fitz, some, some, some housekeeping to do as the show wraps. Uh, we asked people about Tony Larusa and whether it was okay to take away his uh, essentially role as manager after illness because interim manager Miguel Cairo has done so much better with the team and they are in the playoff hunt now. We said, is it okay for the team to tell him to stay gone even if it feels icky to lose your job because of illness? 88.4% said yes. Mm. It was okay for the White Sox to tell Tony Larusa to stay away. And somebody said, smartly, it's underperformance that got highlighted because he got sick. It's not the sickness that lost the job for him. It was underperformance, and that's very much true. We also asked people to suggest some ways to celebrate in Vegas uh, that would make their parade very Vegasy. Most of them we can't say on the air. Oh, a couple, well, you know, Elvis in and out riding a camel down Las Vegas Boulevard. Um, you know, the rest we'll have to wait and see till after they win. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.